Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. Physicist Dave Rogstad is not with us today. On today's podcast, is kind of a part two on dealing with doubt, but also in light of resurrection evidences for Christ. And Ken, um, you took us through some uh, thoughts about doubt on the last podcast. Maybe you can recap that and then uh, guide us to where we're going today. Yeah, doubt is... uh... Doubt is a common experience that people have uh, in many areas of their life, but uh, Christians sometimes uh, have doubts about the faith. Last time, we we looked at uh, uh, three points that Gary Habermas, who is a a leading uh, scholar in the area of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Gary says in his book, Dealing with Doubt, that um, people have uh, misperceptions. One of them is that Christian doubt is uncommon. But I think the reality is that it's actually common for people to have doubt. Another misperception that Habermas mentions in his book is that true believers never experience doubt. But all you need to do is open up the scriptures and you realize that John the Baptist and Thomas and Peter had doubts. So it is possible for true believers to experience doubt. And then thirdly, we we mentioned the idea that uh, um, another misperception is that Christian doubt is always bad. No, um, you know, what, for, what, for whatever reason God has, it, it seems very clear that uh, God works in our life, maybe especially during the difficult times. So we go through, uh, you know, a, a health crisis. We go through a financial crisis. We go through a psychological challenge. Uh, God builds faith out of those difficult areas. So, Joe, in that first program, we talked about uh, the reality that, uh, you know, doubt is common, and it doesn't have to be bad, uh, but it also needs to be addressed. And what I'd like to do in this program is to talk a little bit about the different kinds of doubt, and then go right to the very heart of historic Christianity and talk about the resurrection, about some good reasons for believing that Christianity is true because Christ is risen from the dead. Sounds good, Ken. I know as a baseball fan, I have my doubts about about the Dodgers quite a bit. We're not talking about that kind of doubt, although it is a a human doubt. (laughs) Well, that's right. And, and, And again, you know, a point that we made in our previous program, Joe, is that uh, some of our doubts are rooted in our fallenness. I don't think there's any doubt about that, to use, a, to use the word doubt. I think also, though, doubt comes out of our finitude. And sometimes we're unaware of the fact that, hey, we're, we're limited. We have boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're finite creatures. God is an infinite, eternal being. So some of the doubt is going to come in, in both our finitude and our fallenness. And of course, we touched briefly on the issue of the spiritual war. Uh, there is a spiritual uh, war taking place, and uh, I think a, a, I think one of C.S. Lewis's marvelous books uh, is the Screwtape Letters, where he, uh, I'm told, I've read that he was in church one day and the sermon was rather boring, so he started thinking about uh, temptations of 
of a, of a senior demon training a, a secondary demon on how to afflict Christians, and that he came up with that book in just a couple hours of thinking about it. That's a really powerful book that looks mm -hmm. at the question of, of the supernatural. So we want to, we want to, we don't want to lose sight of that one as well. Joe, what I'd like to bring out a little bit more uh, on the question of doubt is the three categories of, of doubt set forth by Habermas. He says there are three types of doubt. Uh, number one is factual doubt. And he would say these are issues relating to the underpinning of Christianity. So maybe your doubts there is you need some study. You need some you need to look at the, the factual support for the faith. So he would call that factual doubt. He also talks about emotional doubt, subjective psychological challenges, maybe anxiety and depression. Um, you know, sometimes people have doubts because they question, they have a hard time trusting. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have a hard time trusting their parents or trusting in a familial context Therefore, now I've got to trust my heavenly father and, and I, I have some serious issues. Uh, and, and of course, uh, these may be exacerbated by a psychological challenge. Uh, so that's called emotional doubt. Then he talks about volitional doubt. That's where we have a weak or uh, immature faith. So he, he, he basically uh, tells us that look at those areas. If it's factual doubt, you know, do, do some study. Um, pick up Gary Habermas's book on the resurrection. Uh, read Bill Craig's book on the resurrection, for example, or my book, uh, which discusses the resurrection. Uh, so learn the factual basis of the gospel. Review it. Remember, C.S. Lewis says uh, we have to take time to, uh, to re-energize uh, we have to go to church, we have to read the scriptures, we have to pray. If we don't, uh, the inevitability is that there will be some kind of falling away. And so we need to affirm the gospel. That would address what, he, what Habermas calls factual doubt. In terms of dealing with emotional doubt, uh, I think a lot of that has to do with our spirituality. Um, you know, from a biblical point of view, Paul says in his remarkable Philippian epistle that believers should be joyful and prayerful and, and, and thankful. We need, to, we need to reorient the way we think about things. Uh, we need to think biblically. And, uh, you know, in a context of having emotional doubts, uh, Christian therapists often talk about the need to to kind of rewire your thinking, if you will. So you speak the truth to yourself from scripture rather than allowing what might be a compulsive, uh, obsessive thinking. I like to describe it as, I think all human beings have kind of that critic uh, in the back of their head, that voice. Um, that can be problematic. And we need, to, we need to spend time reading scripture, praying, uh, all of those kinds of things. And then dealing with uh, uh, volitional doubt, um, you know, we need to commit ourselves 
maybe recommit ourselves to God, challenge our, our faith. Um, and what I mean by that is read the Gospels again, uh, read some good Christian material and, uh, and activate your faith. Uh, think of ways in which you can trust God rather than uh, giving in to worry or anxiety. Um, how can I, Lord, how can I change that from, from experiencing these difficulties to, to trusting in you? And you know what, Joe, I think it's, I think it's clear that um, these three, factual doubt, emotional doubt, volitional doubt, we see that in ourselves. We see it in biblical figures. Um, you know, uh, there are a number of people in the Old Testament that seem to kind of struggle with what I might call the melancholy experience of life. So I'm hoping these areas that Habermas has uh, suggested, Joe, can encourage us. Yeah, you know, um, it, seems, it, it seems that uh, they overlap as well. Uh, you talked about um, in the first podcast on this topic, people who are in the process of uh, deconstructing their faith. Uh, maybe they encountered uh, some severe challenge, uh, a loved one died unexpectedly or what have you. And then they started uh, coming out uh, online somewhere talking about their factual doubts, whereas really maybe it started with an emotional doubt and was also volitional. This is this was their will to, to doubt. Uh, so do you see overlap there in cases like that? I think I think you're right on the money there, Joe. And 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 again, Lewis in Mere Christianity, when he talks about this issue, he makes the point that we seem it seems like we drift away, mm. um, but we can drift away, and then, you know, for various reasons. Um, you know, the reality is that Christians are uh, forgiven sinners, uh, and they will offend you. Uh, you know, you may go to a church and they step on your toes or you, you put your confidence in Christians and they disappoint you. It may begin with maybe disappointment, um, and that may be an emotional issue. But then, you know, you may be exposed to reasons why you shouldn't believe or reasons why people have rejected, and there is that element. I, I definitely think that there is an overlapping and it's easy to entertain reasons not to believe when you have been deeply disappointed. One of the points I make in uh, Christianity Cross-Examined is uh, I'm going to disappoint you, and you'll disappoint you, but Jesus will not disappoint you. Remember, one of the underlying teachings of Scripture is people are fallen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sanctification is a long process. Uh, so I think you're right, Joe. Some of it, some of that beginning movement uh, can be based on hurt. It can be based on psychological issues. Uh, and then it can also then take into account maybe, well, I've always had doubts about this particular area. Or, you know, I just have a hard time trusting people. Um, by the way, I think that... Uh, I think Christianity, by and large, uh, produced the field of psychology. 
And, and what I mean by that is I think that uh, people like St. Augustine in his confessions, you know, there is the, there is you, but then there's the inner you. And Christians have talked about, um, uh, you know, it, our internalizing of the faith, that we have a soul. Uh, and so there is this kind of dialogue between who we are in the outside and who we are on the inside. Well, um, I think then we can conclude that, you know, some of the wisdom that comes from psychology, now some of it is uh, very, uh, you know, denies the supernatural. Some is not uh, embracing of historic Christianity. But I think that there are some good writers uh, writing in the field. And again, I think Christianity says there's an inner you. So those those issues are quite relevant. Well, what I'd like to do, Joe, is to talk a little bit uh, about the resurrection of Jesus. And, uh, you know, the I, I can't look at all of the 20 evidences. Uh, you can go to my book, uh, Christianity Cross-Examine, Chapter 6. I, I, I have six, excuse me, Chapter 6, I have 20 evidences for the resurrection. But I'd like to just look at a, a few of them and uh, talk about how I think they uh, really buttress a person having uh, uh, faith, uh, uh, faith and trust in uh, Jesus as, as the Messiah. Uh, let's begin by looking uh, at, I think, the, 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 the under, one of the underlying arguments for the resurrection. In my list, it's number one, that Jesus's tomb was, was empty. You know, we know a lot about Jesus's tomb. It, it, that tomb was, uh, the owner of that tomb was Joseph of Arimathea, uh, we know that Jesus's body was taken down from the cross and prepared for, for burial. And this story, this proclamation, this claim that the tomb was in, empty is right at the, at the foundation of, uh, of Christianity. In fact, uh, here's a quotation from N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, a um, world-class New Testament scholar and historian of Christianity, ancient historian of Christianity. He says in his book, Christian Origins and the Resurrection of Jesus, quote, Christianity began as a resurrection movement. There is no evidence for a form of early Christianity in which the resurrection was not a central belief. It was the central driving force in forming the whole movement. Now I'm talking about the empty tomb. If the enemies of Jesus had been able to produce the body, Christianity's dead in the water. It, it would have been stopped before it ever began. It is the belief in that Jesus has been risen from the dead, that he has, he has arose from the dead, is the foundation of the church. One of the, one of the points I make is uh, that the existence of the church cannot be adequately explained uh, apart from the resurrection. But that first argument about Jesus's tomb is empty. Um, and what's interesting, Joe, is that the enemies of Jesus, and what I mean by enemies, uh, there were both re religious leaders and Romans who objected to the ministry of Jesus, did not like his proclamations. 
you know, he was put on the cross because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Um, uh, you know, Pontius Pilate couldn't find any reason to condemn him, but uh, there were people who were obviously opposed to him. So the tomb is empty. If the body could be re uh, produced, Christianity would have been uh, refuted. Uh, but what's interesting is the the uh, uh, those who opposed Jesus, they mentioned, uh, they concede the fact that the tomb was empty because they developed the first conspiracy theory. The disciples came in the night and stole the body. Uh, so they concede that the, the tomb was empty. That story of the empty tomb goes back a, a, a very long time. In fact, um, let's see here, I had a quotation. Yeah, this is from this is from A.T. Robinson. Um, he, uh, he maybe passed now, but he was a liberal New Testament scholar. By liberal, I don't mean politically liberal. I mean somebody who has questions uh, about the authenticity of Christian orthodoxy um, and who kind of rethinks Christianity. Well, this is, this is what A.T. Robinson says. He was a professor at Cambridge University. He said, one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus is the empty tomb. So produce the body, it's over. The tomb is empty. Uh, it's conceded that the tomb is empty because a story is, is set forth uh, to try to explain it. And then thirdly, Joe, uh, there's no tomb that has been venerated meaning that there has never been a particular place where it was believed that the tomb contained the body of Jesus. You know, we can, uh, we can think about, well, where was Siddhartha buried? Uh, where was uh, Moses buried? Where uh, was Muhammad buried? Well, there's no veneration of any place that was considered the burial plot. Uh, there are Christian scholars who think uh, this tomb or that tomb may have been the tomb in which Jesus rose, but there's no veneration of a tomb that actually contained the body of Jesus. So mm -hmm. resurrection is right at the core of, of all of this. Again, N.T. Wright says uh, the resurrection is the driving force behind uh, Christianity. And, you know, in my book, I talk about that. Uh, where did Christianity come from? If 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 Christianity is not um, if it's if if it doesn't have pagan origins, and if it doesn't really have Jewish origins in the context that it's an extension of Judaism, why was I mean Jesus was a failure. He, um, he couldn't be considered the Messiah if he were crucified. He couldn't be considered a prophet if he had this ignoble death by crucifixion, he would have been seen as a false prophet. But then something happened, and the church exploded. Um, so the resurrection is, is critical here. And whatever your doubts may be, and again, I, I, uh, I have had experiences where I have had some serious doubts. For me, they have come when I've had some very serious health issues. Uh, where I thought, wow, um, I'm going through such a difficult time. How do I 
how do I work through these kinds of things? Well, you know, the evidence for the resurrection can be very meaningful to you. Yeah, there are fa there's factual doubts, there's emotional doubts, uh, but sometimes, as you've mentioned, you know, they're they're overlapping. So some of these some of these arguments can can be uh, uh, very helpful. Here, here is another evidence for the resurrection. Jesus appeared alive to many eyewitnesses following his death. Now, death. Now think about that. If you were a naturalist, if you were a skeptic of the supernatural, and you wanted to explain the phenomenon, you would have to explain not only why the tomb was empty, but now you have a second factor. Uh, what about these appearances? You need two explanations. Uh, you need a natural explanation why the body is not in the tomb, what happened to it. And then you have these encounters uh, that many uh, believers are experiencing. Um, Paul mentions 500, more than 500 in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we'll talk a little bit in a few minutes about what Gary Habermas says uh, he describes as the minimal facts. Joe, there are liberal critical scholars who are skeptical, who admit that um, Jesus's disciples had real experiences. Now, they don't draw the conclusion that Peter, James, and John uh, drew, but even critical scholars say, uh, you know, the tomb was empty. Uh, Jesus's disciples uh, uh, believed they were having experiences, and they even admit that it transformed their life. Now, of course, they, they may come at that point and say, well, maybe these were subjective religious visions or, you know, some type of psychological explanation. But the reality is that some of this data is so difficult to refute that even liberal and agnostic uh, atheistic scholars accept. Mm. I'll, I'll touch upon that in a little while about what we call the, the minimal facts. So. Yeah. Ken, a, a, com a comment on uh, sure. what you've been talking about here so far, the various evidences for Jesus's resurrection. It seems to me, and, and you can say it more elegantly than I can, but just in listening to you, that th this is a good time to review these kinds of things, that is, evidence for the Christian faith. When you're going through a difficulty, you're clouded and your mind is not working exactly right. That's where the doubts come in. So this is the time, uh, assuming you're not going through something right now, to, to review things like the evidence for the res resurrection. What would you comment uh, there? Uh, I, I, all I can tell you is that was my experience, Joe. Uh, you uh, remember, uh, you know, uh, later this year, it'll be 20 years since I had, uh, I experienced a life-threatening illness. I didn't know at the time how sick I was. I had uh, I had a large lesion in my right lung. Uh, it went from the lung to the brain, which is not a not a good thing. So I had six abscessed uh, brain lesions. Later, my doctor told my wife that um, the mortality is eighty percent when you have that. So I had uh, a large lesion in my lung. I had to have lung surgery because uh, they had to 
they had to decide, they had to figure out whether what's in the lung is what's in the brain, whether it's cancerous. Um, if I had, uh, if I had waited until I was uh, enveloped in this difficult time, I mean, I, I couldn't think straight because I had brain lesions, but I also had a hard time thinking straight because they're pumping me full of medication. Um, and inevitably, uh, I was able to finally kind of come back to some of those things. I remember one time reciting the Apostles' Creed that I had recited my whole life in the Catholic Church, in the Lutheran Church, the Reformed Church, the Anglican Church. I've recited the Apostles' Creed, and I thought about that second stanza, that second large part of the creed, and I recited it to myself. Um, I remember one night after my, my wife went home from the hospital, I was just kind of, I couldn't sleep. You, you know, the interesting thing is you would think you could sleep in a hospital. It's not easy to sleep in the hospital. Yeah. It's, a, it's a noisy place. And, you know, every hour or so they're coming in to take your blood and all that kind of thing. But I remember just sitting there thinking to myself, could I be wrong? You know, um, could, could, uh, could naturalism be true or, you know, what about Hinduism or Islam? And, and then slowly and gradually, I came back to the things I had written about, the things I had spoken on, the debates I, I'd done. And you know what? I went back to the resurrection. I went back to who is Jesus? Uh, is there solid evidence that he was who he was? Um, and, and it was those that again, gave me a sense of uh, courage. So I completely agree with your point. If you are, if you wait until your house is on fire to sort things out, you're going to be even in a worse place. So, you know, people come to faith, Joe, uh, and I, I picked up this in, uh, again, reading Augustine and Pascal and C.S. Lewis, all three of those thinkers, there were important people in their lives that talked with them. With, with Augustine, for example, uh, Ambrose played a critical role. Uh, in the life of C.S. Lewis, uh, Tolkien and the other Inklings played an important role. You know, talking with Lewis that, hey, Christianity is different than these mythical religions. It's the true myth. Well, uh, you know, Ambrose could present a reasonable case to Augustine, but also with all three of my, what I call the, the big three, Augustine, Pascal, and Lewis, Joe, books played a critical role. Um, you know, with, with, with St. Augustine, uh, he reads uh, a, a number of writings, uh, you know, from the Roman and um, the um, uh, Platonic tradition that play a significant role. Then, of course, the reading of scripture with Lewis and Pascal, it's similar. So getting, getting apologetic resources in the hands of people can be very, very meaningful. I mean, why not at our churches? Why not have times where we go back to those basic ideas and say, look, um, you know, we're going to have a Christianity, Christian Apologetic 101. We're going to look at these foundational ideas. And um, I think a great idea, and, and a lot of churches are doing more of this, where you have a book club. Hey, let's read mere Christianity. Um, you know, 
uh, let's uh, let's read uh, the Creator in the Cosmos by by Hugh Ross. Um, that can be very meaningful. And and again, people go through problems, but your point's a good one. Uh, you don't want to have to sort through all that when you're when you're in crisis. Yeah, I like it. Okay, let's talk a little bit more here about uh, some of these uh, arguments and evidences. And I, again, I have 20 that I write about in um, chapter six of Christianity Cross-Examine. Um, the documentary sources of the resurrection story are considered reliable. Now that's, that's an awfully important one. You know, some people come along and they say, well, I've heard C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell talk about the trilemma, the Lord, liar, or lunatic. That is, if Jesus claimed to be God, uh, then he has to either be uh, a liar uh, or, uh, you know, a deceiver, uh, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And they say, well, you know, you have a false alternatives. You haven't considered other possible alternatives. Maybe he was a legend or, you know, maybe he was just a heroic figure who never claimed to be God. And of course, I like the idea of what's the best explanation. I like that abductive approach to reasoning. But, you know, the documentary sources of the resurrection are reliable. They're considered, the Gospels are considered a type of ancient biography. So they, they fit into a particular uh, category. Uh, we could talk about the, the testimony behind uh, the Gospels. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, think, I think some critics of Christianity have mentioned, Bart Ehrman, for example, mentions that the four Gospels are anonymous. That is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't include the name Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was only later that people began to understand who was at work behind these Gospels. That's different, of course, than Paul's writings, where Paul will come out and say, I, Paul, wrote this. But think of the authors, the traditional authors of the four Gospels. Uh, They're either eyewitnesses of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, or they're closely associated with eyewitnesses. Now, tradition tells us, so here I'm thinking of Irenaeus, Papias, some of the uh, apostolic fathers, the early church fathers, you know, they said that Matthew was penned by uh, the uh, disciple, the apostle Matthew. Uh, they say that uh, uh, Mark um, had a he was kind of an Emmanuelus. That is, Mark, who was not an eyewitness, had a close association with Peter, who was the central witness or one of the central witnesses of the resurrection. So the um, a common theory today, Joe, is that John Mark took kind of Peter's talking points and kind of fleshed out a, a rough testimony of, uh, of the events of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And the reason that Matthew and Luke are so dependent, we call this the synoptic problem. Why, why do those first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, why do they have so much common ground, but yet they're also different? Synoptic, uh, 
uh, we see something in a similar way, well, uh, that would make sense. If, if Peter is the underlying source for Mark, then Matthew and Luke are no doubt going to say, hey, that's a solid source. But they may also want to say, hey, I want to, I want to talk more about Jesus's teaching. Or I want to talk more about the Old Testament prophecy. So the Gospels are meant to give us differing perspectives. Um, now, to go back to this idea of uh, the unlikely authors being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, if Matthew is one of Jesus's disciples, and he is, he's one of the 12, he would have connections to it. Mark wouldn't have direct connections, but he would be connected to Peter, uh, who does have those connections. And by the way, Joe, there are places in the Gospel of Mark when you look at the Greek, where you could you can see how it may have first been written in Aramaic. So that would be the language of Jesus, a very early uh, uh, gospel. Uh, now Luke is not a Luke is number one. He's not a Jew. Luke is not one of the original twelve, but he has a very close association with Paul who is one of the central people. And then if John uh, is uh, the, the John that Jesus loved, he would be in that kind of context. Now, now let, me, let me also present another angle in all of this. If the gospels were made up, if for some strange reason, and I don't know why they would want to do this, but if, it was, if the gospels were intended as myth, I don't think they would have picked those authors. Uh, I don't think that they would have they would have mentioned, for example, uh, Mark or Luke. Uh, they would have had, you know, right at the top. So part of it is that this unlikely group of gospel writers uh, is probably telling us the truth. Uh, it's not it's not the exalted apostles that that would necessarily have have come into it. Okay, uh, here's another here's another piece of evidence for the resurrection. Very little time passed between the actual events and the earliest records. Now, I think it's important here, Joe. Um, you know, th this year I turned sixty five. Well. 60 years ago, this November um, uh, uh, in 2023, um, it'd be the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. Well, I was five years old and I remember that. I, I've learned a lot about it later from reading and talking to various people. But, you know, I can think of events that have happened a long time ago. I remember I was 10 years old when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. My dad came to me at about two o'clock in the morning and told me, son, Bobby Kennedy has been shot. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Well, you know, that's been more than 50 years ago. Uh, of course, historically speaking, if a document emerges closer to the time that of the events it describes, the more reliable it's considered. Now, let's talk a little bit about some dates here. Um, maybe the Gospels. Uh, I, think, I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, may have been written in the 50s. Uh, I think 
probably more likely in the 60s. But let's let's take a more uh, critical view. Let's say they don't appear until the 70s. Well, if Jesus died in 30 AD, and again, scholars debate whether it was 30 or 33, but let's take 30. Even if the Gospels appeared in the 70s, that's only 40 years away. Now, you might think, well, hey, wait a second, Ken, 40 years is a long time. Uh, and I, I want to say a couple things to that. Remember, um, people do have memories of, of significant events in their life. I remember JFK and Bobby Kennedy's assassinations because it meant a lot to our families. Um, you know, I would talk to my dad about and my mom about what was it like to be an American when Pearl Harbor was attacked. And they, you know, they can remember these kinds of things. But let me also make a couple more points here. Remember that it, even if the Gospels are not written into, into the 70s, and maybe John, let's say John is the latest Gospel, if we push it back to the 90, well, that's 60 years away. But consider this, the earliest writings about the resurrection of Jesus are in the Apostle Paul's writings. And his epistles, uh, Galatians may be the earliest, uh, some would date it to 47 AD. So maybe uh, Galatians, maybe uh, first or second Thessalonians, it could be written from the late 40s to the early 50s. Well, that's uh, what, 17 to 20 years later. And there is what we call a period of, of, of oral presentation. You know, the apostles are talking and preaching and teaching. Maybe they didn't write things down immediately um, uh, because they were too busy saving souls, if you will. Yeah. They're preaching. Then they realized, hey, uh, some of us are getting older. We may pass away. We want to write down this kind of thing. But let's also contrast it with uh, some of the claims made in other religions. I've studied Buddhism quite a bit. And um, there are, just as there are Jesus studies, there are Buddha studies. And uh, Buddha scholars, they don't know what century he was born in. There's debates. You know, is it, uh, is it the 4th, 5th, or 6th century BC? Well, you know, Christian scholars debate about exactly what year was Jesus born? What year did he die? Was he born uh, 4 to 6 BC or earlier? Did he die in 30, 33? And people get alarmed. Well, you don't know exactly the year. In Buddhism, they don't know the century. Uh, if you look at the testimony and documents of the ancient world, we've got a lot of documents, uh, which means that we can evaluate them, we can test them. Um, when people say, for example, when Muslim apologists and Mormon apologists make the charge that scripture has been corrupted, and because it's been corrupted, the Old and New Testament, we need another book of Revelation, we either need the Quran or we need the Book of Mormon. Well, because Christians were people of a book who copied manuscripts, who preserved manuscripts, we have some very early documents. Some are in papyra. Uh, short, you know, uh, papyra was kind of the first paper. Uh, but we also have um, 
full documents, codices as they are called. They could go back to the third, fourth, fifth centuries AD. So, you know, these are documentary sources that, that can be analyzed, that can, uh, that can be evaluated. And um, we know a lot about certain people in the ancient world because they wrote a lot. We, we know uh, a lot about St. Augustine because he wrote a lot. We know uh, a lot about uh, Basil of Caesarea, uh, one of the Cappadocian fathers, because he wrote a lot. We know a lot about the Gospels because they were copied and they were preserved. So th these are these are important points, you know, as you're as you're kind of thinking uh, through some of these ideas. Now, here's another point, Joe. We touched on this, I think, in the first show. The Gospels meet the criteria of embarrassment. The Gospels meet the criteria of embarrassment. Now, here's the idea that if something were made up, if it was just a story, if it was intended to be mythical or legendary, uh, you wouldn't want the authors to be presented in a bad light. For example, if you were kind of making up the resurrection story, you probably wouldn't want the first people to see Jesus to be women. Why? Because um, in the first century, uh, a woman's testimony was not considered nearly as reliable as that of a man. Now, I think that's completely wrong, but even in a court case, a woman's testimony was not considered as authoritative. If you wanted to make something up and believe, uh, get people to believe it, you probably would have had Jesus appearing first to men. Uh, another point, you probably wouldn't want the apostles who are the so-called authors of the gospels to look bad. But you know what? They look really bad. Um, Peter denies Peter. Uh, whom Roman Catholics believe is the Bishop of Rome. And he certainly is, even in the book of Acts, it begins with Peter's proclamation and then shifts slowly to Paul. Um, Peter denies that he knew Christ three times. Uh, some of his apostles, uh, you know, Thomas deny him. There, there is this kind of embarrassment um, the, the apostles look thick-headed. They, they're, they're not presented at their best. So this fits with this idea that it meets the criteria of embarrassment. Um, you know, the Gospels just kind of tell you that people are deeply flawed rather than kind of presenting them in, in a glorious uh, type of light. Okay, just picking a, a few more here. Um, let me talk a little bit about the transformation of the apostles. Uh, the apostles were transformed from cowards to, to bold preachers uh, of the resurrection. And I think it would be good maybe if I could quote here a little bit from what Gary Habermas talks about as the, um, uh, the minimal facts here. And, uh, you know, Gary says that uh, even critical liberal scholars um, except uh, minimal facts. And uh, he talks about certain things. He says, for example, that, that, that even critical scholars, 
These are people that don't necessarily believe in a supernatural. They believe that there's so much evidence for the empty tomb that it's just assumed. They also assume, for example, that uh, the apostles of Jesus had real encounters. Now, um, how do they explain the encounters? Well, there, there are lots of different interpretations, but they also admit that there was real transformation. Uh, other factors that are mentioned that Jesus really died, that he really, that, that it's a fact that Jesus died on the cross. Well, these are minimal facts that are so difficult to dispute that even liberal or skeptical scholars accept. And they even accept this point, that the apostles were transformed from cowards to bold preachers of the resurrection. Joe, I think we got three examples that are very powerful. Um, and again, I'm going to tie this to a criticism I have heard and I hear often, and, and that's the the skeptical criticism that religious people are not tough-minded enough. You know, the patron saint of skepticism is David Hume. And, you know, David Hume says you, could, you should go into a supernatural story being totally against it. You should throw everything at it you possibly can. You should not assume it's true. So there have been many critics over the last three or 400 years who have quoted people like David Hume or Immanuel Kant, who were, who were skeptical of the supernatural. And so the claim is often made that, you know, that's not what we find in the Bible. We find easy believism. We find people that are gullible. But let's talk briefly about three that I think meet that uh, tough-minded approach. Um, let me mention Thomas. Uh, again, Thomas was with the disciples and they conveyed to him, we've seen the Lord. And he says, look, I'm not going to, hey guys, I'm, I'm one with you, but I'm not going to believe it until I, I have the same experience. I want to I be able to see the nail marks. I want to put my hand in his side. Uh, and without it, I'm not going to believe. Then something happened where he became transformed, meaning he had an encounter with Christ. He went into it disbelieving, even as an apostle, he went into it. Hey, that's, yeah, you're right. I've seen Jesus do some extraordinary things, but I've got to have an experience. I've got to, I've got to encounter it. Let me talk about one more here, Joe, that I think is even more powerful. Um, and that's James, James, the brother of Jesus. Now, think about James. Uh, James was clearly a skeptic of the resurrection. Frankly, James was a skeptic of his own brother. Um, and why wouldn't he be? Imagine being part of the family of Jesus, where Jesus goes about uh, essentially claiming to be an extension of Yahweh. Think of the pushback that would come with all of that. Uh, so much so that even Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his family, at one point, they say, we've got to go take control of him. I think a fair reading is that at some point, the family was baffled by him, maybe even thinking that he was experiencing mental delusions. Hmm. And, and why wouldn't they think that? Because human beings don't I mean, pagan religions claim that humans can become God. I mean, the Romans 
could make Caesar into a god. The Greeks can do that, but the Jews don't do that. They don't believe human beings are God. So, so James is obviously not a follower of his brother. Uh, and, you know, imagine the embarrassment. Imagine the turnoff of that. But then something happens and he goes from being deeply skeptical, thinking his brother might be mentally ill, to in Acts 15, where he appears as the leader of the uh, council there uh, in Jerusalem, uh, you know, on the level of one of the highest leaders of the church. Well, that, that to me fits what, the, what Hume is looking for. That fits what skeptics are looking for. Somebody who was opposed to it had every reason to disbelieve it, but became convinced. Why? Because the Lord appeared to him. And then, of course, the uh, maybe the greatest conversion in history. I mean, there have been some very powerful conversions. Uh, I talk about the big three. Augustine had an extraordinary conversion to Christianity. Pascal, crossing the river sign, has a, a supernatural experience. C.S. Lewis, I remember, you know, a year or so ago being in the theater watching the you know the most reluctant convert uh, well there have been some big uh transformations conversions but think of the think of paul um he is a rabbi he is anti-christian um i i think the right way of thinking about it is Paul began encountering Christians. He perceived their worship and their teaching, and he was deeply offended by the idea that they were worshiping Jesus as if he were God. And I think the only conclusion, the reasonable conclusion to draw is he saw this as blasphemy. And re remember that some of those some of the high Christology that we find in the New Testament, like in Philippians, in Colossians, 1 Peter, uh, thinking particularly Philippians, which was a hymn, undoubtedly Paul was observing that and he thought to himself, I got to stop this. This is, this is going to destroy Judaism. So he is involved in bringing Christians, uh, you know, to be to be imprisoned and even to be put to death. Um, was he a Taliban? Now, remember in the ancient world, the idea of uh, being a heretic had serious complications. But then Paul says that he saw the risen Christ on the road to Demaeus, right? Um, he experienced Christ and what resulted, he became Instead of the fiercest critic of the faith, he became the greatest missionary in the history of Christianity. He was walking on those roads built by the Romans for, for troop transport. Paul's walking on those, uh, on those uh, cement roads to spread the gospel to the Mediterranean world. He writes of the 27 New Testament books, 13 are written by him. He, in the book of Acts, is debating going into the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews why Jesus needed to be the Messiah. 
Acts 17, he's interacting with um, Greek philosophers. What happened? Well, something, something had to happen, and even, even the minimal facts agree with that. Um, even the skeptical scholars say, yeah, there are certain things about Christianity we really, they're so well established, you can't deny them, like Jesus was really crucified and died, like the empty tomb, like uh, people were having encounters and claimed that he had risen from the dead, and that it changed their character. Well, that's a heavy concession, Joe. That's that's conceding a great deal. And then I think we could add we could add many more. Um, Sunday as a day of worship. I mean, Sunday had no relevance to Jews. The first day of the week, no relevance. Uh, it's the Sabbath day, sundown Friday, sundown Saturday. Um, why does Sunday become significant? Only one reason, because that's the day the Lord rose from the dead. So Christianity becomes Sunday keepers instead of Sabbath keepers. Why Sunday? The only reason could possibly be, uh, you know, the resurrection from the dead. Other things we could talk about, uh, all of the alternative explanations of the resurrection they all prove embarrassingly false. The disciples went to the wrong tomb. Well, uh, couldn't that have been rectified? Um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he owned the tomb. Uh, didn't they have the possibility of doing investigation of that? Um, you know, there, there are other... Uh, there are other alternatives. Hypnosis, maybe they had... You know, they, they all experienced a hallucination, mass hallucination. It's very difficult to have hallucination that wouldn't be extremely subjective. And then what about people who were not given to hallucination, like James, like Thomas and, and Paul? Um, you know, one theory was uh, presented that Jesus had a twin brother, maybe... maybe Maybe the explanation, and this is set forth by a man who was formerly a Christian apologist, did his doctoral dissertation on the resurrection, and became a skeptic and said, well, look, we know the supernatural doesn't happen. So what is an explanation, an alternative explanation for the resurrection? Maybe Jesus had a twin. The twin was put up for adoption. Maybe the twin showed up. Uh, and saw the events of, of his twin brother. And uh, while Jesus died, and maybe his body was disposed of somehow, maybe this twin appeared and presented himself. Well, I mean, think about what that would be. Would, would he put carve marks in his hands, in his side? I mean, why would anybody do this? Um, all of these alternatives are so inadequate and so poor that you're kind of driven back. And, and again, we could talk about why I think this is the best explanation. So dealing with doubt. Doubt is a common experience. Uh, doubt doesn't mean unbelief. But doubt, doubt has many 
possible causes and sources. If it's a, if it's factual doubt, then reviewing what we've reviewed can be very helpful. If doubt has to do with more, uh, you know, a lack of trust, or if doubt has to do with maybe psychological anxieties, then those issues could and should be addressed. But again, I come back to uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, you know, I, I, I love Mere Christianity. It's one of my favorite Christian books. It's the first Christian book I ever read. Joe, one of the reasons I like it so much is every time I read it, and I've read it multiple times, but even this time when I was listening to it on tape, I picked up things I, well, I thought, what? I don't remember that. Um, and what struck me in listening to uh, someone read Lewis's book on tape was Lewis said, when people fall away, isn't the typical case that they drift away? He says it's not necessarily that they're reasoned out of it. I mean, I, I like the question. Um, and, and I think that, uh, uh, oh, who is the, who is the uh, pastor who recently died in New York City? Um, Tim Keller. Tim Keller. Uh, fascinating man because he had the heart of a pastor and the head of a scholar, wrote, wrote some really good apologetic material along with a lot of uh, very good biblical uh, perspectives and counseling. But he said um, when he meets uh, non, non, when he meets people who have fallen away or deconverted, he asked them, well, you used to believe in the resurrection and now you don't. What happened? Were you reasoned out of it? Well, there are alternative explanations, but I think a better explanation is there is a there is a tendency to drift, and uh, you know having doubts that's a common experience. But if you drift uh, and then you're disappointed, and then you you have maybe psychological issues that cause you to have distrust, you know th then you might look at Hume and others who raise these types of questions. Now I don't believe. Uh, I mean, one of my theological convictions is that Christians will never fall away, that God will uh, ensure that they persevere in the faith. Uh, not all Christians hold that view, but many do. Um, but even there, uh, there are times where I think people get off track. Uh, but I think we can confront our doubts. We can ask, why am I having these doubts? Is it spiritual warfare? It, do I need to do more careful study about the underpinnings of, of historic Christianity? Or do I have psychological issues that make me distrustful, whatever it may be? And then we can address those types of things. Uh, we don't want to let it continue to linger. Uh, and we also want to realize that, you know, faith is a gift. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Lord. Um, you say in your word, faith comes by hearing, hearing the message about Christ. Uh, make scripture a, a critical part of your life. I think that one of the great gifts of the Protestant Reformation is the deep 
commitment to the Bible as the word of God. Um, but you know what? Catholics were saying that before as well. Jerome, who was a contemporary, St. Jerome, uh, the great biblical translator who translated the Vulgate, the Bible into Latin, which became uh, the uh, Bible of the Catholic Church for a thousand years. Um, uh, Jerome was famous for saying that ignorance of the Bible is ignorance of Christ. God's word um, has a power to transform us. And so prayer, Bible study, uh, attending church, studying, you know, solid sources that help you, th these can be very meaningful. And, and Joe, um, while doubt is not common, uh, it can be hurtful. It can be painful. And as you pointed out, and I, I, I'm really glad you did, you don't want to you don't want to wait until you're in crisis. You want to you want to look at these things very, very carefully. And um, you kind of have to get used to the fact that you are going to have doubts in your life. And there are a lot of things we don't have certainty about. And faith is living uh, genuine faith. It is. It is a rational faith, but it's still faith. And uh, again, I like what St. Augustine says, you know, reason doesn't cause faith, but reason everywhere supports faith. So I'm hoping these programs will encourage people to, uh, to address this, this challenge of doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Ken, you talked about evidences for the resurrection. Uh, can you mention where you've written about this in your book or books so yeah. people can see the full case there? Yeah, I think I think probably um, uh, the extended list that I have in my writings, I write about it in Without a Doubt and in a World of Difference. Uh, I also have an extensive section in Seven Truths That Changed the World. But in my most recent book, Christianity Cross-Examine, Chapter 6, I look at 20 uh, ev particular evidences. So that's the, the longest uh, uh, number that I talk about. And I have lots of sources, uh, you know, quoting uh, Habermas, quoting Bill Craig, quoting N.T. Wright, uh, various other specialists uh, concerning the resurrection. Uh, and we've mentioned in our two programs that Gary Habermas has a book dealing with doubt. In, um, it was written in 1990, but you can find it online. So you don't even have to pay for it. Uh, you could print it out or you could read it online. Uh, William Lane Craig has a little book of, that addresses doubt that's helpful. Uh, hard questions, uh, real answers. Uh, and there are plenty of, of I think, terrific uh, apologetic books. Joe, a book that was so meaningful to me, of course, is Mere Christianity, and Lewis has a variety of books, but my friend and uh, colleague at Biola University, um, J.P. Moreland, has a number of books. Uh, one of them is Scaling the Secular City. That really had a big influence on me when I was uh, first studying philosophy. Um, Habermas and um, uh, his colleague, Mike Lacona, they have a number of books on the resurrection. And of course, if, you're, if the challenge is science, then you come to the right place. You can go on reasons, 
Org. You can go on to the Reasons website. Um, I like to say that Hugh Ross has kind of used science uh, in a way to marshal uh, the cosmological argument. That is, uh, Hugh is an astronomer, and he talks about uh, you know design in the universe. He talks about uh, the cosmic singularity, Big Bang cosmology. So in many ways, his science context, if I were to uh, bring it to bear philosophically, it would be the cosmological argument. With uh, uh, Fazrana, who now is the president of RTB, I've worked, Joe, you and I have worked with him for more than 20 years. He really brings to bear what we call the teleological argument. He's looking at design in the soul, uh, uh, in the um, cell, I should say, uh, the cell's design. But one of his latest book, he looks at, you know, the anthropic principle being applied to biology and chemistry. So I see him in that, that kind of context. There are lots of really good materials. And lots of people have questions about, hey, how does, how do the two books fit? I, I think RTB's really at its best when uh, when people have those questions. All right, plenty of reading material. Thank you for all those resources, Ken. Uh, you wrote a blog sometime ago where you talked about, uh, where you wrote about some of the ideas you talked about here on this podcast and the previous one, which you went through personally. That one is called, Are You Skeptical of Your Faith? So if you type that in on RTB's site uh, or on Ken's blog channel, you'll find that as well. So you, you may find that helpful. All right. Uh, thank you, uh, Ken, for your thoughts. Uh, I know I appreciate hearing them. I'm sure our listeners do as well. Uh, let us know your thoughts and your questions or comments. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter, and that's at RTB underscore case samples. We'll be glad to read your comment here. Make sure you get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. That's going to wrap it up for Ken Samples. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.